podcasting. Today we have Lucy, who joined Social Justice Tours about two years ago, uh, runs our Women's History Tour and our Protests and Riots Tour. So first, I'd love to just have a kind of a couple get-to-know-you questions, and then mainly I want to talk about the present moment uh, in this time of coronavirus pandemic, and specifically how some of the research you've done helps us understand this present moment. So, uh, but to start with, just you want to say why you decided to lead tours? I found social justice tours just on the web by looking up radical walking tours. I had gotten a book about radical walking tours by Bruce Caton and found it really inspiring. And I wanted to do something similar, but I was looking up to see if anyone in the city was still doing that, that, that type of thing. And then I found the social justice tours, so I just went ahead and reached out to you guys. And for me, the main reason I got into giving tours at all, or give walking tours and to talk about history in general, um, is because learning about the past is a way to expand possibilities for the present. There's so much inspiration to take from different methods of radical organizing, and I'm a radical person myself, and I've been in an activist for a good majority of my life and just seeing different ways of approaching an activist life, whether it's combining art and activism or establishing autonomous radical spaces or hosting radical salons to discuss and educate about things or reclaiming public spaces. Also, the inspirational bravery of so many people in challenging the system, especially women who Mm. have lived as liberated free, loving, and queer, putting their freedom or lives at risk for the way that they live. But we can all learn from their accomplishments and failures um, and appreciate the freedoms we take for granted and see how also the persistence of some of these issues points to them being so very deeply rooted in society. I really try to show the continuity of past struggles against injustice to today's injustices. And New York City is such a perfect place to do that with all of its layers, both beautiful and tragic. And rather than let those layers be forgotten, we should let them deepen our understanding of the city, why the city is the way it is, and what the city still could be in the future. So you lead two tours. One is the Women's History Tour, and one is the Protests and Riots Tour. Both you've sort of touched on, but do you want to just delve into a little bit of what you talk about and some of your goals for those tours? to live 
a more liberated lifestyle. Um, going back till really the mid 1800s, and then especially in the early 1900s in the pre-World War One years, history of being the center of bohemianism, arts, and radical lifestyles, radical organizing as well, but just so many women who were, you know, feminists before feminism was even a term that people were using, going there because they were able to live the way that they wanted to live. There was a certain acceptance of that and a, a cultivation of alternative lifestyles. Um, and so there were so many amazing women that had come to that neighborhood and done amazing things over the years, you know, well into the late 20th century as well. And so I thought that it was a great place to cover a wide range of topics regarding women's history and so many women that had been totally forgotten about that did amazing things that should be remembered in their fight for equality and and for you know social justice in general and so on that tour i go you know to historic places that were either homes where people lived or where spaces businesses you know bars or restaurants or gathering places for people you know greenwich village is something that has also just a very fascinating history and I also start in that neighborhood for the other tour that I do, the uh, protests and riots and strikes from Washington Square Park, you know, like Greenwich Village to the East Village to Tompkins Square Park, and going back to the very beginning of that neighborhood when it was the time of New Amsterdam when the Dutch were there, and that area became known as the Land of the Blacks, and then eventually Little Africa, and talking about the African-American history of the neighborhood as a way to put into context one of the major upheavals that tour is about in general upheavals in the city and i started off with the draft riots that happened and i worked my way east from there talking about a lot of other great upheavals that happened in those er in the areas around washington square park and astor place uh the astor place riots that happened and also in something that i talk about as well in the women's history tour the uprising of the 20,000 a huge garment strike that happened in 1909 and 1910 mostly women, and going Tompkins Square Park and talking about the uh, upheavals happening there, different rights in the 1870s and in the 1980s and 90s. And, you know, sort of an underlying thread of how city creates different social dynamics and how these dynamics basically explode sometimes in, into these great upheavals and class conflict that underlies these upheavals and deconstructing them and how they changed the city, how they changed the neighborhood, the demographics, the physical aspects of the city, and the park, the evolution of parks uh, and cities and city planning in general as, as ways to try to keep people divided, you know, try to, try to prevent mass upheavals from taking root and the militarization of police. And there's a lot of different things I talk about in that tour, but there are some some general underlying threads that connect them all. You know, all of these things are things that most of the people that go on these tours have no idea about. Mm. So, so both of those tours have so much to unpack, and maybe it's worth mm -hmm. having you on another time and talking about some of the incredible <laughs> women you discuss or some of the incredible protests and riots you discuss. I think you mentioned um, how a lot of people of the tour have no idea of any of the stuff you're talking about, and I think that's uh -huh. exemplary of why such a tour is so important, because I'm sure everyone on that tour has heard of the male figures of Greenwich, uh -huh. Greenwich Village Definitely. life, you know, and, and I think that in and of itself... Uh, demonstrates the patriarchy to which you're speaking of. So to to pause that or hold that for a later conversation, though, uh, you're talking about upheavals. Um, we are in a time now of great upheaval. So I'd love to get your thoughts on the present moment 
And especially I know you've been doing a lot of research into rent strikes. And I think that that is particularly relevant right now. So uh, as a historian, kind of giving us uh, allowing the past to help guide us in the present. And so kind of giving us some background on the history of rent strikes. Like you mentioned, I've been doing research on the history of tenant organizing, which is something that I'm sure has had a very long history. But um, as far as what's most relevant to today, I'm starting with basically just the 20th century, the early 1900s, from the creation of some of the first tenant unions to anti-eviction mobilization and to a very relevant topic today, rent strikes. And today, because of this COVID-19 pandemic, much of the workforce having had shut down large numbers of the working class, many of whom were already living in financially precarious situations, are either on unemployment or completely out of income. And those of us who have to pay rent are now faced with this dilemma of either giving all our money to the landlord, and especially here in New York City, rent is barely affordable already, um, or eventually facing eviction when this is all over, because even if there's a moratorium on evictions now, most landlords are willing to put tenants in debt to them, demanding all that back rent to come eventually. This could still, in the end, lead to a lot of evictions. Tenants have power in numbers, and what I'm hoping to do with this short virtual presentation on the history of tenant organizing and rent strikes is to show that tenants can be successful if they come together. And there is a whole wealth of history in New York City of this. Starting, I started in 1904, which is one of the first like major rent strikes that happened in the Lower East Side. A lot of this comes from the immigrant neighborhoods of the Lower East Side. And so 1904 and 1908 are some of the big ones that happened early on. So can you give and us a bit of information about those strikes? Sort of who organized them? What were the results? Uh, not coincidentally, the people that were organizing these rent strikes and that were supporting them were people that were involved in the trade union movement. And there is a very important connection between unionization in general, in the workplace, in the factories and all of that, and the people the immigrants especially that were doing that, and in the garment industry, especially um, in the Jewish Lower East Side, that organizing basically spills over to tenant organizing. Which I will Uh, say makes a lot of sense just in terms of philosophically how you approached it. You said there's power in numbers. I think that is the essential philosophy of unionization and why unions can be strong is there's power when organized. Uh, Yes, and all of the same rhetoric that was being used for like factory organizing, that type of unions was being used for tenant organizing and also boycotting. You know, in 1902, there was a huge boycott of kosher butcher shops um, led by the housewives. And similarly, with tenant mm. organizing, it was a lot of women leading it because they were realizing that you know the cost of living going up so much, shortage in housing, that the only way to bring both the price of rent and the price of food down was to organize and boycott both you know the food and the rent. And some of the people that were leading, especially in 1908, were the people that were already involved in union organizing. Pauline Newman is one of them who worked at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory and got involved in the International Ladies Garment Workers Union through there. The New York Times actually called her the Joan of Arc of the Lower East Side because um, she was a wow. teenager. And she was really, really organizing uh, the tenants, and especially the women, the housewives, as well as working women, you know, who are the ones that have to do all the budgeting, 
that have to worry about feeding their families, stretching mm. their dollars, gaining a certain deep understanding of the markets, of the housing problems and all of that. And so um, getting them to stand together. And then late, a little later on, another great trade union organizer, Clara Lemlich, who then 1913 gets married and becomes Clara Savelson. Um, she was one of the leaders of that uprising of the 20,000, the garment workers, mm. in 1909, that huge strike. And she eventually, starting with right after World War I, around 1917, uh, there was a huge rent strike that happened there, too. And she was, by that point, living in Brownsville, Brooklyn, which was one of these neighborhoods that was getting the sort of overflow from the Lower East Side and other Manhattan uh, immigrant neighborhoods. Uh, as those places were becoming you know, too overcrowded, she becomes a big leader of the rent strike, organizing the tenants out there, too. And also in the Bronx, that was another hotbed of tenant organizing and rent strikes. It had in part to do with shortages of housing and also inflation after World War One, And uh, they were very much, especially Clara Lemlich-Shavelson, very much identifying that women, housewives, are political. Not only are they facing down these powerful landlords and capitalists and the police who back them up, patriarchy on the left itself, mm. uh, within the unions, within the sort of trade unions, and the Socialist Party and the Communist Party and all of that, saying that organizing women and housewives was totally peripheral to the movement, you know, mm. uh, that it wasn't worth the time and the energy, that they had to only focus on the factories, the party and all of that. People like Clara Lemlich, Shelson, a generation before the 1960s feminists, you know, saying that the personal is political mm. and that housewives can be equally as radical and be equally as powerful politically as consumers, you know, the buying power that they had. And if they got organized and would tell that power and went on, um, boy, you know, boycotting and rent strikes, that they could have a serious effect. And out of this organizing comes some of the first tenant unions and some of the first tenant laws. If it wasn't for all of these groups organizing and putting pressure on the courts, overflowing the courts with eviction cases and mobilizing against evictions, moving people back into apartments once they were evicted, all of that, mm. you know, defending their buildings from the police and from the landlords and the marshals. All of this had put enough pressure on the government, on the courts and all that, to finally come up with tenant protection and some of the first rent control that we've ever had. And then tenant organizing sort of dies down a little bit through the 1920s, although Clara lemlich Chelson was still organizing out in Brownsville and then later Brighton Beach. She joins the Communist Party. And some of the other people that she had been organizing with, Pauline Newman, sort of goes a separate way. Pauline Newman kind of stays more with the, the Ladies' Garment Workers Union. But then the Depression hits, and this is where this becomes extremely relevant to today because it's no longer just certain parts of society, you know, just mm. you know, the lowest classes of society that are being affected by evictions and slumlords and all of that. But now you have massive amounts of people that are out of work, starting in the early 1930s. Middle-class people, too. And thousands of people all over the city facing eviction. And so this is where we see the sort of biggest rent strikes, um, anti-eviction uh, and tenant mobilizations happening mm. then. Luckily, there are some addresses of buildings in the Bronx where these big rent strikes Started. And, we're, and we're talking about thousands of people coming to defend buildings from eviction and taking very militant tactics against the police and the landlords. And especially, again, the women, the women that are leading 
and the women that are putting their bodies on the, on the line with the police. And then again, also moving people back into apartments. You know, once they move out, just every mobilize the neighbors and everyone to just come and move all the furniture back into the building. Um, and then it kicks off in the Bronx, and then it spreads all over the city. So Brooklyn, again, and Clara Chavelson in Brighton Beach made it clear that no one was going to be evicted in Brighton Beach. And mm. she... She really dedicated her whole life to organizing in general and trying to make these connections between what women have to do, you know, women's responsibilities as mothers and housewives, but also going beyond that to politics in a larger sense and being housewives to understand their role in the larger political cause. And these were very successful rent strikes and anti-eviction mobilizations. That spread all over the city, and then you know, eventually, it's all over the country. And a lot, a lot of this stuff, especially during the suppression, is not just in New York. Of course, it's all over the place. And Clara Shavelson also, very uh, by 1935, through this this organization that she started, that originated with the Communist Party, but then kind of becomes its own thing, the United Council of Working Class Women, that starts a nationwide meat boycott to again bring down the price of meat. And this is something that kind of starts in New York and Chicago, but it spreads all over them. It's not just, you know, Jewish women in immigrant neighborhoods, but it's women all over the country, no matter their background or their class status, participating in this. And it's very successful. And then, of course, you know, you have eventually the backlash against people involved in the Communist Party and socialists, you know, by the 1940s. And then, unfortunately, a lot of the great gains that these people were doing, whether or not they had any real affinity for Bolshevism or... Stalin or anything like that, but the Communist Party to them represented a very practical way to change things, mm. right? To keep a roof over their head and to, to address the problems that they were going through, to get food and all of that, and to fight against racism as well. And by the 1930s, it wasn't just Jewish women doing this. It was actually really strong in Harlem, in the black community as well. This, this sort of Communist Party and, and in general anti-eviction and food boycotts and all of that and fighting against the racism of landlords, especially. And so I think there's so many valuable lessons to learn from this. And looking at these two moments of of crisis, where it's something that's just affecting so many people all at once, Mm -hmm. and there's no real clear view of how this is going to continue to unfold, how long is this going to last. Our government doesn't seem to really be helping us that much. You know, we're kind of on our own. So therefore, we really have no choice but to rely on each other and to come together and defend ourselves and and to create, you know, these networks of mutual aid and support and defense. Gosh, you said a lot of amazing, fascinating history there. (laughs) And I I feel like it would take days and days to really delve into all of it. And, And what I'm curious about, and you touched on it briefly, but is the results of some of these strikes, both from the individual strikers? I mean, what did some of them what happened with their organizing efforts and what did the strikes do for them personally? And then the structural, uh, what um, larger structural changes occurred from these, some of these strikes. Individually, people like uh, Clara Lemlich Shavelson was a committed radical her whole life. A lot of people like her got, get blacklisted from things. A lot of the people that had been formally involved in these organizations and, you know, the organizations either fall apart mm. or, they get deported or they basically have to like cut off ties with that to save themselves. And so, you know, after World War One, the, the huge tenant movement that happened there, uh, because there were some laws passed as far as giving tenants more protection and 
restricting the rights of landlords to just arbitrarily raise the rent or evict people for whatever reason, you have a sort of drop-off in tenant organizing. And a lot of the early tenant unions fall apart. They didn't last very long after that. And then similarly with the 1930s, you have things like the New Deal and a lot of more laws coming out of that. And then some of these organizations also lose strength. And there's always a sort of up and down as far as how how long the success of these movements lasts. It succeeds for a while, and you know people win these gains. The rank gets lowered. Hmm. Improvements happen in their buildings. People are not evicted anymore. They get to stay. But then it only lasts for so long, and then little by little, the, the reason why... There's a rent strike in 1904 and then another one in 1908. Is because whatever gains were gotten in 1904, by 1908 had already gone away. You know, mm. the landlords were back to raising the rent and kicking people out every few years. It comes back. And then by the 1960s, you have a whole other wave of rent strikes because their buildings are in disrepair and they're not putting money into the upkeep and there's problems with rats and broken facilities and all of that. So, uh, you know, that's the era of white flight where the money is leaving the city, unfortunately, and, you know, the people that are left living in the city are left holding the bag and having to deal with the loss of government resources and good jobs and tenant, you know, protections and all of that. And then, you know, where we're at today, you know, even though we we still have a lot of these laws that kept in place about rent control and stabilization and protections for tenants, we're also kind of now seeing with this huge amount of growth in the early 21st century with gentrification and all this building boom and all, you know, the population kind of swelling again in the city, you're seeing a lot of these abuses happening Mm. again. Landlords intimidating and harassing tenants to try to get them to move out so they can, you know, jack up the rent, get people kicked out of rent-stabilized and rent-controlled apartments, you know, breaking all sorts of rules. And this kind of comes home to me, and the building I'm at today is actually a rent-stabilized building, But and I just moved here not too long ago, but a lot of my neighbors have told me some of the history of how unscrupulous the landlord of our building is and trying to hide the fact that the building was supposed to be rent-stabilized and mm. jacking up the rent. So since you're bringing us to the present, I'd love to bring us to the present. Um, mm-hmm. In thinking about a time when real estate is probably the most powerful, arguably the most powerful it's ever been uh, mm-hmm. in the history of this city, uh, at a time when even though everything is closed down, luxury developments continued to be built until only, I think, yeah. last week finally they ordered <laughs> luxury developers to no longer continue. How you mm-hmm. see the rent strike movement uh, playing into all of this and and where the rent strike movement is today in the city? Well, this, because this kind of happened all at once right now, the saying was, you know, gradually and then all at once, Mm. you know, so many people were laid off or on indefinite furlough, basically, including myself. A lot of people were just shocked into this realization that we can't pay rent. You know, we don't have any money. Luckily, you know, there was plenty of brave people that just went right ahead and said, well, what we need is a rent strike and demanding that the government do something about this. And there was, there has been a lot of support in the state government, you know, up in Albany, state representatives, local representatives that are are supportive of it. Uh, State Senator Giannaris wrote a sort of rent moratorium legislation that I think is still being debated. It's still Mm -hmm. being worked on. We don't know 
you know, if or when it will pass. Uh, you know, people are realizing that we can't just wait for the government to do something about this, that we, we have to do something about this. Just these reflections of what was happening almost 100 years ago in the Great Depression. And so there was a massive call for rent strikes all over the country, especially in these cities like New York, where it is where most of the people are renters and it's very expensive to live. And a lot of people who are, you know, either in the gig economy or servers or reliant on all these jobs that are now had to shut down. You know, it was just sort of like a movement that spread in a lot through like social media and all that of people realizing that you're not alone in your dilemma of this, but we can all stand together as tenants. And that really that's the only way that it will work if we all come together. And so the building that I live in now, that's what we did basically. As soon as everything started to shut down in the city, my housemates and I just put up signs around saying, you know, that we wanted to start a WhatsApp group for us all to talk to each other if we needed things, if anyone was sick or needed someone to go get groceries for them, you know, just in general, like to uh, be supportive of each other. But almost as soon as that started and we started talking to each other, we realized that there was a lot of support in the building for going on rent strike uh, because a lot of other, a lot of our neighbors were also out of work. And, and just give us a little context here. How many neighbors do you have? What type of building are you talking about? What oh, type sorry, of management? Um, it's 24 units altogether. Okay. Um, we estimate there's between 50 and 60 people living here. Yeah. And some of the people who were still working from home, they were still willing to stand in solidarity. You know, maybe their housemate was out of work and they were willing to sort of stand with their housemate and both not pay rent. And so we started just talking about this on the WhatsApp group. We had a Zoom meeting, you know, all of this. And we quickly came to the realization that this is the right thing to do for the whole building. But it still took a while to get to everybody in the building. We went around going door to door, trying to get everybody on the WhatsApp group. And then eventually we crafted a letter together to send to the landlord explaining the situation and that unless the government does something about rent forgiveness, that we are going to just take it into our own hands and go on rent strike. And we got almost everyone in the building to sign on to it. Now it's already April 5th. We're still keeping in communication with each other. We put flyers all over the building, reminding everyone why we're doing this and that, and that we're going to keep, we got to stay strong and stay together. You know, we keep hearing about people all over the city and all over the country that are doing this and getting in touch with lots of tenant support group and uh, legal aid, other, you know, like housing aid organizations that are keeping us informed of our rights and, you know, what to do. And so it's a continuing process of us all figuring this out. Some some people will be soon talking to a, a lawyer about, you know, what we should do and all this. And so it's kind of, you know, we're still all kind of like figuring it out as we go along. The fact that so many people, whether or not they had the ability to pay rent, uh, that we all feel supportive of each other. We all feel like we're in this in solidarity together. It was really heartwarming, you know, mm. to see that. And me and my particular housemates were pretty new to the building. And, you know, we were doing a lot of the legwork of just, like, getting this started. And, you know, our neighbors were just so appreciative of that and so welcoming to us. So, yeah, it was a really wonderful thing. It's a wonderful way to really get to know your neighbors and mm-hmm. to make fast friends with them. And I really recommend, you know, everybody talk to your neighbors because you're not alone. Mm-hmm. I was talking to my sister in Chicago who is similarly out of work. And she was just like, I guess I'm going to pay rent. She was like, I can afford it, you know, this month at least. 
and a lot of people I think feel like that too like well I'll pay it this month um, and then hoping maybe by May 1st I'll still have enough money I recommend don't wait until then you know start now talk to your neighbors figure out what you could do together and don't be afraid to stand up to the landlord tenants have to show that they really have the power that if the landlords aren't willing to do any sort of compromising then you're just not going to compromise either and you're not going to pay a rent until something happens until the government does something and also hoping that through this the landlords who definitely have so much more influence in the government than tenants do, for them to put pressure on Albany and on all the state governments to do something about this, to address this problem, because because we're not just going to let them take every last bit of money that we have just so we can keep a roof over our heads. And so, and I think that the the point there, I mean, there again, there's so much in what you're saying is so rich, but that I think if you look at the history of social change, as you just have shown very well, structural change happens when activists come together and organize and create grassroots movements, take action into their own hands, and then it filters up. It doesn't happen the other way. So yes, while we certainly do hope that the rent moratorium in New York goes through, I think that it's really important to recognize that, as you've said multiple times, this isn't just a waiting game for what bill is going to happen, but uh, really an opportunity for folks to meet their neighbors, organize, um, and take matters into their own hands to improve their situations, potentially. So the thing I want to end with, which I think that's a, a wonderful message, is... Do you have any resources that for folks who are considering rent strikes or want to learn more about rent strikes or how to organize rent strikes, anything like this, any resources you recommend? And before you say that, I want to put a quick plug, which is that all of us at Social Justice Stores are working on uh, more in-depth story maps and visual aids to go along with some of the information we've been researching. Um, And so Lucy will... At some point, uh, there will be information on our website, socialjusticetours.com, some of the resources, uh, some, the story map that Lucy's putting together. But in addition to this sto- forthcoming story map, do you have any resources that you'd like to shout out? Housing Justice for All is an organization that's really reaching out to a lot of people. There's a, you know, there's a COVID-19 tenant organizing toolkit out there. And how would people access that? Just Google uh, COVID-19? NYCRentStrike.com has a lot of this stuff. NYCRentStrike.com. NYCRentStrike.com. Great. Um, and it has kind of a list of all these different things. The website is going down. Is another great one. It has a, a whole thing about um, why and how to go on rent strike. It's going down. Dot com. It's going down. Dot com. Yeah. And then there is, of and, course, you know, we have to stand on the shoulders of the giants who came before us and fortunate uh-huh. to the organizing of them. We have many neighborhoods have tenant unions, and that is a, yes, exactly. a very Tap easy... Yes, exactly. local tenant union. And there's a lot of, like, legal aid networks, you know, I mean, legal aid society in general, a lot of these long-established resources for tenant organizing, tenant unions, and tenant rights, and all of that. Cool. Well... Thank you so much, Lucy. This was such an amazing conversation. And I hope everyone is well, safe, healthy, and considering striking rent. for
forever, solidarity forever.